Hello and welcome to the Verblio Show. This is the podcast for digital agencies and digital marketers brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. I'm your host, Steve Pockross, and I'm Verblio CEO. Today I'm talking with Drew McClellan, a 30-year veteran of the marketing world with as much wisdom to share as anyone in the industry today. Drew has run his own agency for 25 years and also runs the Agency Management Institute, where he provides invaluable training and support for hundreds of other agency owners across the country. He is also a noted author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster, and we touched on everything from how agencies created soap operas to the worst commonly given advice to modern agencies. Drew and I spoke on September 11th, 2020. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Drew McClellan, thank you so much for joining me on The Verlio Show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's jump in with the origin story. You started your career in agency world as a copywriter. Yeah. How did that affect your view of agencies as you begin to, began to climb the ranks and eventually start your own agency? Well, I, th- I think actually it teed me up pretty well to sort of move through uh, agency life and become an owner because as a copywriter, if you don't understand the big picture, if you don't understand sort of where we're trying to get to and the brand, there's just so many elements that a a good copywriter has to take into account as they sit down to craft whatever it is they're making. Um, It it allowed me very quickly to learn how to be sort of that big picture thinker, to think about strategy and brand and audience and messaging, all the things that today are really what drives marketing. So it sort of teed me up pretty well, I think, to continue to navigate my own career through agency life. You've now written or co-authored five books. And talk a little about the theme of these books and why write books today in the age of digital marketing? So, you know, books, I think when we say books, most of us still picture a book that you hold in your hand. And the reality is it's just long form content, right? And so a lot of people just this last week, finally got into the studio uh, because of COVID. We had to cancel a couple times. Finally got into the studio and recorded the audible version of the book. And I expect actually for that to outsell the Kindle and the actual physical book by quite a bit. So when we say book, I think it, the, it's sort of a misnomer now, like no one reads. Well, people do consume books. They just consume them differently. But the reason why I do it is because, um, and all of the books sort of had their own purpose. But the reason why I wrote this last book was because I think agency owners are struggling to figure out how to really sell their agency in this strange new content-driven world that we live in. I have a strong belief about how they should do that, and I wanted to get that captured. And I think that, um, and we wrote it this way on purpose, my co-author, Stephen Wester and I, we wrote it this way on purpose. It is also a blueprint of how I think agencies should work with their clients. So we were really saying to them, do this for yourself as a case study and then sell it exactly the way we've taught you to your clients because it all it works for everybody it's not just an agency business program perfect so let's talk about your your new book which uh i'm currently obsessed with and the rest of my company is reading at the same time which is sell with authority highly recommend to all and i think just to call out again that this the book is targeted to agencies but also relevant to all digital marketers in Sell with Authority, you lay out the history of agencies, particularly how they get back into the C-suite. I hadn't heard a lot of that history before, and I was hoping you could share a quick recap and then talk about really what the goal is that you're advocating. 
Yeah. So when you think about the origin of advertising back in the day, like even before Mad Men days, um, agencies made their money by buying media. That's how they got paid was media commissions. So they gave away all of their strategy, all of their creative. So when you think about it from a business's point of view, why wouldn't you have the agency in on all your strategy meetings and all your planning meetings? Because it didn't cost you anything. Right. And so agencies were at the table and they were really setting the course for their clients. And oftentimes what they were doing is they were actually having to create audiences to talk to about their client's product or service. So one of the stories we tell in the book is there was an agency called Benton and Bowles. And by the way, agencies back then were big. They pretty much lived in LA, New York, and London. That was it. And they were these huge, ginormous agencies. The agencies we have today where there's seven people and they're in, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi. That, that didn't exist back then. So you had these huge kind of holding company-sized agencies. And uh, there was an agency named Benton and Bowles in New York. And their largest client was Procter & Gamble. And they couldn't find media channels to help Procter & Gamble talk to housewives. So they created the radio version of soap operas. So back in the day, they were the creation. The agency was the creator of three of the four most popular soap operas in the world, including As the World Turns. And then when television came along, Benton and Bowles, the advertising agency, was creating television soap operas. Again, keep in mind, the reason they were doing this was to create an audience so they could show diaper commercials and cleaning product commercials to the women at that time, for the most part, watching those commercials. And then eventually they licensed the show to the TV stations who then continued to produce, but they negotiated that P&G could be the exclusive presenter or sponsor of As the World Turns through the relationship that they had with Ben and Bulls. So back, back then, we were much more hands-on in terms of really thinking about business solutions for our clients. And then you, then you get into the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, and all of a sudden what happens is agencies start selling their strategy. They start selling their creative. They start taking what today we see as a pretty significant cut in media commissions. So all of a sudden agencies are caring about selling the stuff. And they're pricing this stuff. And now all of a sudden, they're being sort of pushed down the food chain to work with marketing managers and people like that. And they're not in the C-suite anymore. Well, one of the things I think is exciting about this sort of new era of marketing is, and this a lot of this is around content and certainly the kind of things that your clients are thinking about all of the time is now to create content that is actually useful that anybody pays any attention to that isn't pablum requires us going back to the conversation about being a copywriter requires us to really understand the business strategy and be a driver in that strategy. So for agencies, this is a way for us to get back to the C-suite and help clients think about how they want to position their business and how they want to be seen. And in some cases, creating their own channel. I mean, think about what Red Bull has done with the, creating their own channels around magazines and events and things like that. We now have the opportunity to be basically a media producer on behalf of our clients or for your clients that are 
that direct client for themselves. And now all of a sudden, just like Benton and Bowles made up a thing to create an audience, that's what we're doing today with content marketing. And so we really have gone full circle and now we're back to sort of being able to sit at the big boy and big girl table and talk about things more important than, you know, oh, you need four brochures and we need to write five blog posts this week. Now we're talking about the why, which is the cool part of what we do. It's the cool part. That is yeah. such a new history. Um, Tell me one thing I've always wondered about agencies. How did marketing agencies become known as agencies when every other group or every other vertical calls them consultants? Yeah. So the reason why uh, the word agency is used to describe what we do goes back to the origin of agencies, which is at that time we were the agent of the client negotiating with the media. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and I think for a lot of people that's, you know, that's the divide between the consultant side and agencies is that agencies were really hired to buy stuff on behalf of the brand, as opposed to really what a consultant does, which is guide the brand. So the theme of your book is that agencies need to develop their own authority to be successful in this new world, to get into the C-suite. Right. What do you mean by authority and then how do they achieve that? So what, what we mean by authority is there are, there are two choices that an agency has is they can be a generalist, which means that they would work with a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker, whoever comes in the door. Or an agency can be a specialist. They can specialize in working with construction material clients or uh, pharma companies that have a product for women over 50 or whatever it may be. And our, our premise is that just like, you know, if, if you were super sick and you had, you had a brain tumor, you would probably not go to your general practitioner to get help with that. You would go to a specialist. And in fact, you would drive by five general practitioners to get to the specialist because you know that they can solve your problem faster and better. And they've done it more times than anybody else. And this is important to you. So you want to do that. So it's why everyone goes to Mayo rather than their local hospital or whatever, right? So the same thing is true in our industry, which is when you are a specialist, when you have a depth of expertise and you demonstrate that over and over and over again, what it does is it, it creates several opportunities for an agency that a generalist doesn't have. Number one, I am not bound by geography. I can have a client in Portland, Oregon. I can have a client in Tallahassee, Florida. I can have a client in, you know, Warsaw, Poland, doesn't matter. Because I am a specialist, they will seek me out. They will fly over or drive by many other generalists to get to me. Number two, you assume that if you're going to the brain surgeon for your tumor, it's gonna be expensive. Mm -hmm. So agencies can command a premium price when they are a specialist. Um, but, all of this requires that you actually establish your authority. And that's really the point of the book is, look, here are the advantages of being a specialist. If you agree with that premise, here's how you do it. And you do it by creating content that demonstrates over and over and over again how helpful you can be to that specific audience. And you sort of ignore everybody else. So you're not doing a blog post on the Pantone color of the year or some other generic marketing trend that every other agency on the planet is writing about. You're writing about, you know, the buying cycle of the big box stores when you sell nails and screws, right? So 95% of the planet is like, I don't wanna read this, but the 5% of the planet that does wanna read it, 
really wants to read it. And you're just demonstrating over and over two things. One, how smart you are and B, how generous you are in terms of helping them be better at their job right now, even though they're not paying you a dime. That's what an authority does. When you think about an expert or an authority, they are constantly giving away what they know because, and the, the implication is they know so much that it's okay for them to give it away because they got a whole bunch more that they can share. One of the pieces you talk about authority is that the combination of point of view and niche expertise. You just talked about niche expertise a little bit. I'd love for you to talk a little more about POV as well. And niche, by the way, everyone immediately assumes it's an industry, which it doesn't have to be. For most agencies, that's sort of where they gravitate to. But a niche could be an industry like construction materials. A niche could be an audience like, man, we can reach millennial moms. We get, we get them more than anybody else, right? So we know how to get to them. A niche could also be, we solve a very specific problem for our clients, all of them, whatever it is. So um, we help our clients get past the gatekeeper to doctors. Another thing, another way, another thing a niche can be is uh, deliverable. So right now, a lot of agencies are niching down and they are Amazon marketplace experts. The problem with that niche is, Right now, there aren't a lot of agencies that know how to do that. So that's a fruitful niche. Five years from now, every agency will know how to do that. And you're going to have to come up with something else. So that's the flaw in that particular niche. But so that's niche. Point of view is the overlay um, that you put on top of your niche. So if my niche is women over 50 who... um, and we are a pharma agency for women products over 50. If I have an opinion about how to reach those women, what those women know, I have a way of like thinking about the work. So I'll give you the AMI example. So AMI, we serve small to mid-sized independently owned agencies. That's our niche, right? So if an agency is 500 people, we're probably not for them, right? If an agency is owned by a holding company, we're not for them. So that's our niche. But my point of view is agency owners are accidental business owners. Mm -hmm. So they're really great at the client-facing stuff, but they don't actually know how to run the business of their business and they need help with that. So that's what we do is we, so that's how the niche and the point of view come together to define exactly who you serve and how you serve them. Make sense? Makes a ton of sense. I've actually uh, been thinking a lot about that for our business and redefining how I discuss marketplaces in the exact same vein. So for you, your point of view is going to be something around quality of content, the partnership between writers and that, person who's hiring them. Uh, It's going to be around what content can or can't do. Like it's going to be something about how you believe your work is different than everybody else's work. And so when you combine niche and point of view, there are going to be very few companies, whether it's an agency or you're a direct provider, there are going to be very few companies who look just like you. So now all of a sudden you're differentiated in the marketplace, which is the whole point of specialization, right? You advocate that, uh, that agencies should focus on content creation as the way to stand out from the crowd and discuss how cornerstone content is key to that path, in addition to the Trojan horse of sales. Can you share why? It's not just content, right? Because again, everybody's cranking out more content than we absolutely need. What we're saying is when you have defined who you are with this uh, niche and point of view, 
Then the next step is to establish your authority. And what authorities do is they teach. Every authority, when you think about anybody who is an authority, they at some level teach. And so for an agency, the way for them to teach is to create content. And for us, cornerstone content is a big meaty piece of content. So think a podcast uh, show, a book, an annual research project, something that's so big and meaty that you can slice and dice it into a bunch of little pieces. Because part of our thing is we know how busy you are and you're not going to do this. But if you have this big, let's say you do an annual research project and out of that annual research project, you can get 52 blog posts, 50 infographics, a hundred tweets, whatever the numbers are, all of a sudden now content creation for an agency is a reasonable ask. And what you're doing is you're staying very focused on teaching your area of expertise. So if you do a research project around something that only your audience is going to care about, and then you talk about it all year long, that's one of the ways that you establish that you are an authority or a thought leader or a subject matter expert, whatever word you want to use, because you stay uber focused on that and you keep sort of driving deeper and deeper into that knowledge, which as a result makes your audience better at their job every time they interact with your content because you're giving them actionable things that they can think about, apply to their business, um, share with their team. They can go ahead and teach it internally. That's what an authority does is they teach. And so in our world today, content is the way most people are teaching. One of the things that really stuck with me was the, um, so you talk about podcasts as being a piece of cornerstone content, which I don't right. think many people talk about. I think most people think about cornerstone content as a giant ebook. Uh, and then you talk about finding your own voice. What's your most comfortable style? I'm hoping you can uh, share a little more about that as well because it resonated. Yeah. So I, the reality is most of us are better at talking or writing. And so a lot of people are like, oh, I need to be a thought leader or I, this is good biz dev for me. So I have to write a book. I, I don't want to write a book. I just, I can't write a book. I, I hate the way I write, blah, 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 blah. Well, then don't write a book, right? <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of things. So you might be a keynote speaker and give 12 keynotes a year. You might do research, which by the way, a partner is going to do a lot of, and then you're going to go out on the speaking trail and talk about your research. You're going to do a weekly podcast where, you know, when you think about a weekly podcast, that's 52 hours of content. That is a cornerstone piece of content, not any episode by itself, but the collection of a year's worth of podcasts is absolutely cornerstone. And you could easily slice and dice each episode into 20 or 25 things and then think about what you have for the whole year. But it, it's important if you're going to do this, because you, you're not an expert on something for a year, or you're not an authority on something for a day. You're going to be doing this for a long time. So you need to pick the channel where you are going to be most comfortable staying for a really long time. Doesn't mean you're not going to change channels. You know, when I, when I started this strategy for AMI, it was more writing because again, I'm a copywriter. Um, but when we launched the Build a Better Agency podcast in 2015, that very quickly became our cornerstone. That, that drew a bigger audience. It was more interactive. It really caught fire with a lot of agency owners. And so we then shifted. It doesn't mean I don't still write. But when we sort of think about our cornerstone 
on how we're going to break that up into a bunch of little pieces. We actually start now with the podcast. You have one of the most successful agency podcasts out there, Build a Better Agency, and you've been doing hundreds of episodes. Yeah. And you started off as a writer. Which one is your favorite channel? What are your favorite medium, writing or, uh, or speaking? I, I, so I'm left-handed, uh, but I throw a ball right-handed. So I'm pretty ambidextrous physically, and I'm sort of ambidextrous that way too. I, I love to write. I'm very happy in my little cocoon of writing for you know six or eight hours a day. But I also love to talk to people, and I love to talk on a stage about what I've learned or whatever. I'm equally comfortable doing both, and I enjoy them both for different reasons. One of the most erroneous statements made about authority marketing is that it only serves the top of your sales funnel. We could not disagree more. I think yeah. most people think about it this way, that it's basically a giant SEO play. And I'm hoping you can tell us more about why. Yeah. So I, I think the whole point of our strategy is that you use your cornerstone content to introduce you to people who've never heard of you before. But then you're creating more intimate content that they have to kind of keep stepping closer and closer to you, if you will, into the sales funnel to get access to it. And ultimately, when you are, when you are a true authority, when you are a true subject matter expert, think about anybody that we think of as somebody who really knows their stuff. One of our, our kind of goals is to kind of get close to them and learn kind of at their feet, if you will, rather than from like, you know, a stadium seat thousands and thousands of feet away. So with content, you can keep creating the opportunity for someone to keep create a deeper relationship with you, a more intimate relationship with you, which ultimately ends up as a one-on-one -on -one relationship as a customer. So your content can absolutely move someone all the, all the way through the sales funnel if you are thoughtful about it and if you guide that prospect sort of through the journey of wanting to get closer and closer. And, you know, when you think about it, somebody reads something that you wrote or they saw you speak at an event and then they text you their email address to get the deck and now all of a sudden you're sending them information. And if you keep being helpful and then all of a sudden you say, well, you know what, we're doing a webinar. Well, now they've stepped in a little closer, right? Now they're actually interacting with you on a screen. And then at the webinar, you're saying, well, you know, we're actually holding a live event. And they go, oh my gosh, I could be one of 30 people in the room with this expert who I'm learning so much from. And they step even closer. And in the live event, you say, you know what, we have room for three or four more clients. And they go, okay, I, I want that, right? Because every time I talk to you, you're teaching me something new that I can apply to my business right now. Why wouldn't I want a better, deeper relationship with that person? So that's why I don't think it, I think if, you're, if it's only top of funnel, you're doing it wrong. Before we leave the, the book topic, is there any other major points or themes that you think would be particularly relevant to share with the, the audience that I haven't covered so far? I think one thing to think about, if you were the business owner and you were thinking about establishing a position of authority for your business, and you are introverted, or you think you're a terrible writer, or you don't like to talk to other humans, be very careful about creating celebrity in an employee and making them the authority for your business. Because honestly, what happens, and I've seen it happen over and over, is, and I've seen this happen in agencies all the time where the agency owner didn't want to be the authority. Um, and so they had like their VP of marketing or their director of account service do it. Well, guess what? Those people got cherry picked. 
And all of that authority went to the new agency that just hired that person. Whether you like it or not, the authority inside your business, whether you're an agency or not, really does need to be somebody who can't pick up that authority and go someplace else. It has to be an owner, whether it's the majority owner or not, if you have multiple partners, um, that it may not have to be that, but it sure should be somebody who's got skin in the game. Let's say you're not a great writer. It doesn't mean you can't hire a ghostwriter to write your book, but you have to be the guest on the podcast and you have to be the one that talks about the book. I mean, you have to at least be public facing the creator of that content. So even if you are interviewed for five hours and a ghostwriter writes the book, fine, but it's your book. We're gonna switch into some of your other work with uh, decades of, of work as a leading agency and also starting uh, the Agency Management Institute. Let's just start by talking about the origin and path of how you got to the Agency Management Institute. So I started my own agency uh, when I was 30. So uh, I was working for a guy that I didn't have a lot of respect for. And I thought, you know, how hard can this be? If he can do it, I can do it. Um, so I launched my agency in 1995. So we're 25 uh, this year, actually in 2020. And um, very quickly learned that I was that accidental agency owner that I was describing earlier in our conversation. I was really great at the client stuff, but like how to read a PL and how to know when I had enough money to hire someone and like all that stuff. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I, um, I found an organization at that time was not called AMI, but it was started by a former agency owner who realized that agency owners needed help on the backside of their business. So he completely changed the way I ran my business. So now fast forward into the early 2000s, and he comes to me and he says, you know what, Drew, I want to retire. And I think you are the guy who can take what I've built and make it something different. And I was like, originally I was like, I already have one risky business. I'm good. <laughs> um, but long story short, too long for, for an hour long podcast. But um, two years later, I decided that I was going to take that risk. So I actually bought his business, which back then was... Um, three peer groups, which is sort of the core of AMI, are these agency owner peer groups, like a Vistage group or an EO group. Only everyone in the group owns an agency. So it was three peer groups and he did a workshop a year. Mm -hmm. And so I bought it and now it's completely different. I think we have eight live peer groups, four virtual groups, I think five key executive groups. We teach, I don't know, eight or 10 workshops a year. We, we've done a lot of other stuff. But always on the same premise, which is agency owners need help running their business. I still own my own agency. That was really important to me. I, I, there are a lot of agency consultants out there that used to own an agency or used to run an agency, but they never owned the agency. But agency life is changing so fast that the advice I would have given five years ago, I don't give anymore. Well, I'm not sure I would know that if I wasn't still doing it. So I still own and run my own agency. And um, I spend about 20% of my time, people always ask this question, um, A, I don't only work 40 hours, but B, I spend about 20% of those hours on the agency side of my business because I, I have a great strong core team that's been with me, I think, 18 years now. And then I spend about 80% of my time on the AMI side, helping agency owners build a better life for themselves and their team and their clients. Right. We are uh, going through the general, the fire trucks and ambulances that like to go by in the middle of all of my podcasts. Of course they do. I think it's exciting. It adds some element of like pressure and excitement in the show. And all of a sudden there's sirens that that's like something big is about to happen on the show. Yes. Much, oh. much 
exciting than vacuuming happening downstairs. Yes, I think so. Yep. You were just talking about how many agency coaches there are out there. And I think that's really, you know, we talk to a lot of them and have a lot of them on the show. Uh, Amy has been doing this for over 20 years. You've been leading this for over 15 years. Yeah. To what you do differently. That's making, you know, that keep that's been so successful. Um, I think it's a couple of things. Number one, I think it is the fact that I still own and run my own agency. So, um, I think relevancy certainly makes us a little different. Um, I think the way we do peer groups is very different from other like agency networks. A lot of them will have like 50 or a hundred people in a room. We have a cap of 13 agencies in a cohort. And one of the things that we make them do is they pass out their financials. So they have to pass out their P and L their balance sheet. And then I give them an Excel document that, tracks a bunch of agency metrics that they have to fill out and they have to give them to everybody. So there's really no like blowing smoke up anybody's skirt about how you're doing, right? It's very intimate. It's very honest and transparent. And I think that levels up the conversations pretty dramatically. Um, So it creates a much stronger connection and bond between them. Uh, I have some people who've been in the same group since 1999. So, um, you know, that, that says to me that the group is still delivering a lot of value to them if they're willing to pay an annual fee to do that for that long. You know, and they have to get on a plane, they have to be away from their office and all of that. So I, I think the peer group structure that we do is very different. Um, I think the fact that I facilitate all of those live peer groups. So you've got somebody who works with 250 or 300 agencies a year in the room saying, I hear what you're saying about that problem. Let me tell you how three other agencies mm. dealt with that, right? So um, I think that's part of the value that I bring. I think part of the value is, um, and <clears throat> this is absolutely not scalable, which is a business issue for me, but I honestly love the people that I work with. And I think they feel that. I mean, I, I, check, in, I check in on them on the weekends whenever I'm thinking about them. Um, I can't do that for 10,000 people, so I got to figure that out. Um, but I think they feel like I actually care about them, about them as a person, about their business, um, which again creates a different level of trust and intimacy for our work. Well, what's common agency advice that other gurus out there are telling agencies to do that you think is crap? Don't do timesheets. I, I think they say that because they um, know it'll make agency owners happy, but it is some of the worst advice I have ever heard. And it's not about how you bill. It's not about the way you're structured. It's about, do you know what your most expensive asset, your people are doing every day? And are you sure that they are being effective and efficient? If you don't have timesheets and you don't know how people are spending their day, how in the world do you know if your pricing is right if your estimates are right, if you're staffed properly, if you have room for another staffer, if you're overstaffed, you can't know any of that without daily timesheets. But it's an unpopular thing to say. And so a lot of consultants say you don't have to do it. It is sort of the nucleus of critical data for every other metric that we look at as agency owners. And for every services business. Absolutely, right. If you don't know the actual cost inputs. Right. What is uh, the most overused word in marketing right now? Oh, unprecedented. (laughs) Can't can't even hear the word without crying a little bit or challenging. 
or probably together. Like we're all in this, we're really not all in this together. We are not, right? I mean, everybody is crawling to get through this. And, um, but unprecedented is probably the one that I hear copyright, lazy copywriters using more often than they should. What do you like to use instead? I think I would use words that describe what that unprecedented feels like. Like, what, is that, what does that actually mean to you, the person I'm talking to? I, I don't need to put a label on it. I need to just call it out. Like, you know, we are lonely and isolated and scared and frustrated. And I mean, there, there are a lot of emotions that a writer can play with right now because everybody's emotions are so raw and on the surface. One of the things that a great writer does is they go right for the pain point. They just hit it mm-hmm. um, and they do it respectfully and with taste, but they don't tap dance around it. They just call it out for what it is because then the audience goes, oh my God, you totally get me. Okay, now I'm going to lean in because you've proven that you understand where my head and heart is at. So now I'm going to hear what you want to say. And when we use buzzwords, I think people just ignore us. What questions don't you get asked nearly enough? I don't get asked nearly enough. On the personal side, I don't get asked about the Dodgers enough because I'm always happy to talk about them. And on the professional side, what I don't get asked enough is I'm 10 years out from wanting to retire what should I do right now as an agency owner to make sure that my exit is what I want it to be? Mm-hmm. I get asked that question two years out and then our choices are much more limited. So I, we're not talking about that far enough out. Interesting. So your role as an agency coach is also overlaps kind of with a financial advisor of thinking deep into the future. Oh yeah. We spend a lot of time talking about money. Absolutely. About the agency's money, about the owner's money, um, because at the end of the day, they are the same thing. And, and, and oftentimes, agency owners don't treat them as the same thing. And so they piddle away the agency's money, which really should be in their pocket. Drew, uh, fascinating conversation today, as I knew it would be. How can people find you if they'd like to learn more? Probably the easiest way to find me is just to head over to agencymanagementinstitute.com. And you can find me there. But I'm also everywhere on social, LinkedIn, Facebook you know, all the, all the social channels, just as Drew McClellan and McClellan um, is spelled M-C-L-E-L-L-A-N. No, no two C's, no D, um, but I'm pretty easy to find, I think. And your podcast, Build a Better yeah. on all yep. platforms, in the book. Every, right. You can find it pretty much anywhere. Uh, we put out a new episode every week. Uh, and like you said, we've been doing it since 2015. So there's plenty of back episodes to catch up on if you're interested. So, yep. Of the game, are the Dodgers going to win the pennant this year? I sadly, I think so because they're going to win it the one year I can't be there. Oh. Right? Yeah, right. So I've been at the la- I've been at a World Series game the last two times they were in the series, um, and I saw them win games, but of course they didn't win the World Series either case. Uh, so of course, yes, they'll win it this time because none of us could be here. But um, just, I, but they're they're looking good, so we'll see. Just despite you, Drew, yeah. it's. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on The Verblio Show. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of The Verblio Show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Steve Pockross in Denver, Colorado, signing off.